صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Melbourne. I'm very, very, very excited to be joined by the wonderful Janine, who joins me live in studio today, and she's going to tell us a little bit about herself. Welcome, Janine. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> very exciting, very exciting. Now, those that don't know, Janine is a magnificent and fabulous Palestinian activist and uh, wonderful all-around person, but I'm not going to talk too much about her. I'm going to let her talk about herself. Um, but um, we're just going to put her on the spot here. You, hopefully, you'll be able to hear more of her in the future because she'll be joining us um, more and hopefully lots, but she doesn't know all of that just yet. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Janine. Thanks. Now, Janine, you're, you're, you're a, a, a Palestinian woman, um, but you've got a very interesting story. I was born in Australia, so I'm an Australian. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite things, you know, people say, will be surprised to meet me if they've heard me on the phone because I sound like us, but I look like them. Mm. In, in, in the generic, mm. um, you're my undercover sister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now tell tell us your journey because I, I was born here, but you weren't. Yeah. So um, my story really begins with my parents. So uh, my mum was raised um, and grew up during the Lebanese Civil War, and my dad uh, was born and raised in a Palestinian refugee camp in Syria. Um, and so they met in Bahrain, um, and that's where I was born. And um, I was born stateless, so I inherited a refugee status from my dad, and there were a lot of things I would have preferred to inherit, but uh, that's what I got. I got refugee status. Um, and we arrived in Australia on the 23rd of February, um, 1997. And it's quite a long process to get here. So um, the process to come here really started when my mum was pregnant with me, so that's kind of when my parents um, kind of it dawned on them that they were going to... Um, be bringing a stateless child into the world um, and what that meant in terms of um, the rights that I would or in this case wouldn't have have access to. Um, so dad as a as a Palestinian um, applied uh, to come to Australia and um, he had to do an interview as part of that process and in Bahrain where they were living at the time there wasn't an Australian embassy so he had two options um, either to go to Dubai or to go to Saudi Arabia and to do um, an interview in either of those um, countries neither of which would give him a visa as a Palestinian and so he had a friend of a friend um, who knew someone at the Greek embassy in Bahrain who got him a visa to go to Athens so my dad goes to Athens um, and does his interview there um, and as part of that interview um, says that um, my, my wife's pregnant, I'm about to have uh, my first child and I'm, this is going to be the third generation of stateless and I really want to break that cycle. Um, and so, you know, um, they gave us the visas and we, ca and we came to Australia um, a few years later. And um, what really... you were born stateless. Yeah, I was born stateless. So I became an Australian citizen. I was naturalised when I was six years old. Um, and... And um, 
And yeah, so, um, I mean, I think for me, the fact that my dad um, had known someone who got him an interview at the, at the Greek embassy, um, that was serendipitous. That was, that was luck. And um, as far as I'm concerned, a system that um, is based on luck is a broken system. And so um, for me, I've always acknowledged the, the part that luck has played in my journey and always try um, in everything I do to acknowledge um, that these systems are so broken and, and are so based on luck and that a lot of people haven't been as lucky as I've been. Um, and those of us who have been lucky um, have a moral obligation for those of us who haven't. And so that kind of has informed a lot of, a lot of you know, my beliefs and my values in my life. Yeah. Because, I mean, the reality, and you know, if we go to Yarmouk in Syria, but the, the, the six million Palestinian refugees uh, that have not had the luck your dad didn't yeah. know someone who couldn't get them onto a plane to, to Athens to get an interview, and then the wonderful contribution your family has made to Australia. Um, they, they've languished now fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generations. Uh, and, you know, the suffering of, uh, from Yarmouk through to now into Turkey and, and, the, and the real desolation that those Palestinians suffered. Yeah, and, and the Palestinian uh, refugee camp that my dad grew up in in Syria, the people that didn't leave, that stayed there and now have had to endure the um, Syrian civil war, they were no longer... Um, eligible to apply for refugee status a second time because they're like well you've had your you've had your go Mm -hmm. and so it really adds this extra layer of injustice and extra layer of complexity to um because there's special rules for palestinians yeah well yeah you you know you've had your chance you can't be a refugee forever um and this is part of that um the the zionist push and certainly uh donald trump's push to defund onra so that they can get rid of the palestinian problem uh, and have us assimilate like anybody would take us, even though we built the, yeah. the whole of the other world. Um, so, so that was your journey to here. You're, you're now an Australian, but you didn't stay here for for too long. No. Um, so we, uh, my parents had quite a hard time in Australia. So we had no family here. My dad's side of the family um, is really dispersed, so everyone just kind of went to wherever it would take them. And um, and so I've got cousins all over the world now. Um, but my granddad, my my mum's dad, was really sick, um, and so uh, my parents were also struggling, you know, in terms of um, workplace racism and things like that, and and struggling to. They're very qualified people. My mum was doing a PhD in Australia, and which she ended up finishing, um, like from overseas, and my dad. Um, had a degree, so they were very kind of educated people, um, and despite that, still really struggled to to make ends meet, especially when we first came here. And so, um, yeah, we moved um, to be closer to family, um, to back to Bahrain, and then eventually to Abu Dhabi, where I spent ten years of my life. Um, and then I came back at eighteen to Melbourne for university, and I didn't really—I mean, I was so young when we left; I was about six or seven, and so. Um, didn't really come back to um, any friends or like a community. I kind of did feel quite isolated um, and did exist in a lot of very white spaces at Melbourne Uni, um, lived on campus and, um, yeah, not necessarily the most um, inclusive environment. And so it was very easy. Like like you said, I sound Australian. I'm very white passing. I'm quite pale. I have green eyes. And Fair. so, Fair. yeah, yeah. Um, and so it was very easy for me to just get away with trying to blend in and not talk about Palestine and not talk about my background. Um, I grew up very involved in the cause. Like um, 
I, my name's Janine, for starters, so it was always part... It's a very good name. For yeah, it's a woman. very good name. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, my name's Janine, and so I kind of always, is in explicit in my identity, had, had that connection to Palestine. And also, like, would, um, especially when we're living in Melbourne, spend every Saturday at protests and every Sunday at Arabic school and I'd go, get back to school on Monday and all the white kids would have all been to Auskick. And I'm like, why can't I just go to Auskick with the white kids? Why do I have to go to Arabic school and protests? Um, and so I think, yeah, by the time I kind of came back to Australia and was quite isolated and, and did have that upbringing that was so um, intensely political, um, I mean, how can it not be? As a Palestinian, um, I just tried to hide for a while Mm -hmm. um and didn't really feel very safe saying I was Palestinian um in a lot of the spaces that I existed in um and so yeah it took a while but um I'm back now um and I'm been very involved now in the cause for a few years um and yeah I think a lot of young Palestinians struggle a bit in terms of how to navigate um a lot of spaces as a young Palestinian and I think it's important for myself and other kind of younger Palestinians to really um, set a good example and like pave the way for the next generation of of Palestinians because the struggle isn't going anywhere anytime soon unfortunately I wish it was but um, it's not and so we keep doing this um, because of our grandparents who were outlived by the occupation mm-hmm. um, and so that's why that's why we do it, and I think that's important to remember. Yeah. So, so I mean, the reality, Janine, and obviously you embody everything. You know, uh, your your father's story and your grandfather's story and your grandmother's, is, um, and a, a, as do we, and, and the the debt that we feel encumbered with uh, that is to advocate for those that are less fortunate. Yeah. You know, we, we do live a privileged life. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, if you're in Australia. With the access to clean drinking water and iPhone, uh, your fridge has got food in it. We're already in the one percent of the earth. You know, we're already one percenters. Um, the fact that we can speak about Palestine without a fear of a two a.m. knock on the door and opportunity to yeah. a, a re-education centre. You know, uh, um, we don't have to worry about that. Um, but those that live under the oppression that is occupation, and and the the absolute inhumanity, the in open air prison that is Gaza. Mm. Um, you know, we actually feel that. Sadly, for many, Pal- we see you and I, and many of our like-minded Palestinians, see many Palestinians who've chosen the great Australian dream and assimilation and participation, but not advocacy. Yeah, and it uh, hurts our head a little bit. It does. Yeah, it hurts my head and my heart. It yeah. it really does break my heart. Yeah, um, and I think there's two kind of. Um, I think there's two elements to that. I think, first of all, as Palestinians living in Australia, we do hold so much privilege compared to Palestinians in Palestine. And with that comes um, a requirement to um, act in solidarity and to try and elevate the voices of people living on the ground in Palestine um, because of the freedom freedoms that we do, do have here to kind of talk about Palestine. Um, but then second of all, like... Um, we are settlers in this country and um, even though we were victims of settler colonialism in our homelands here, we are benefactors of it. And I think that as well is a, is a privilege and I think um, we also owe it to um, First Nations people here to also show solidarity. So I think, I mean, I think the Palestinian cause is so linked to so many other causes that how can you not kind of draw parallels between First Nations justice and women's rights and um 
you know, like racism and Islamophobia more broadly and refugee rights and things and LGBTQI and, you know, with pinkwashing and greenwashing and the climate. And there are so many, um, so many opportunities for solidarity that I think aren't being leveraged as much as they could be. And it's a shame because people are powerful when we're, when, um, we so when we're together, when yeah, yeah. the power of people and the power of numbers, and um, it's a shame that that's not currently being leveraged um, as much as it could be. And wh- why do you think that is? I think, well, in the context of Palestine, I think um, we don't really talk about we don't really talk about Palestine in the context of other other struggles. Um, I think a lot of Palestinians have included, you know, my parents included, have had a pretty um, pretty hard ride. And so um, it becomes easy to. Um, I mean, my, my parents are pretty good, actually. But it becomes They're very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it becomes easy to to only think of your own cause because that's what directly impacts you. Um, but I think the way we talk about Palestine isn't in the context of First Nations justice, and it isn't in the context of well, look um, at Israeli pinkwashing and um, queer Palestinians, and look at how Israel caused the worst natural. Um, or climate disaster in um, Lebanon's history, um, but are going and, and participating in the climate strike. And so there's all of these kind of contradictions that aren't being recognised and aren't being called out. And I think as Palestinians, we're not talking about Palestine in the context of um, a struggle for self-determination or a struggle against apartheid. Like these aren't new concepts like settler colonialism isn't a new concept apartheid isn't a new concept but we're not taking them back to their historical roots and acknowledging common struggles with like these historical struggles so so that challenge with intersectionality yeah might exist at at a generation uh, above you and you know whilst i celebrate my 50th birthday on international women's day yeah (laughs) um, i'm constantly reminded my friends and and you know it's great that you're here on international women's day um, or the day before. The day before, yeah. Um, and that you can take the show over as of next week <laughs> <laughs> when I can sleep in. The, the the reality is that that generation might not have been aware of the concept of internet. Mm, that's true. And, and, but that doesn't forgive your generation. No, not at all. Um, but, you know, to be... To be fair, I also like... Um, I'm just being a mean old dad now. Cause I'm yeah, busy. well, I think... well. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I think that a lot of people, um, it's not, it's not that they know what intersectionality is and have actively rejected it, but I think there is this, um, unwillingness to, to learn and unwillingness to like sit with discomfort. And I think there's this unwillingness to kind of think a bit more outside of just what directly impacts you. And I think that's kind of the, the problem, the underlying problem. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so that, that absolutely explains a lot. And, and look, one, one of the challenges uh, that I've always noticed is most Palestinians come to Australia, and we're just talking our, our context here, with, with similar stories to, to your parents. Yeah. Um, it's been a struggle and they get here and they're like, let's just keep our heads down. Yeah. You know, we made it out. Yeah. Um, where, where my challenge is, you know, even though my dad had the same story, he was like, I don't care if you lock me up or shoot me. I'm not going to forget those that I left behind. Yeah. Um, and w- where intersectionality becomes, you know, part of a broader base, in the first instance, we have a responsibility to those we left behind. Yeah. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing more of that. Now, you, you've done some work with APAN. 
Yeah. Um, and and we had a Palestine boot camp. Yeah. Give me give me the goss. That sounds the cool. The goss. Um, yeah. So we ran the boot camp um, earlier this year, and we had six amazing participants. Um, and hoping next year it'll be um, even bigger and even better. And it really came from um, a need, I think, identified by APAN for there to be more young Palestinian voices um, in the media and advocacy space. Um, And it was really great. It was um, run, like, in collaboration with Democracy in Colour. So um, Tim Lasorto from Democracy in Colour came and facilitated. um, And we had some really great um, Palestinian voices come and speak to us. Yeah, and so it was really – yeah, it was really good. Um, And I think that one of the main things that a lot of the participants took out of it was that it's actually – there's actually like a formula almost to like advocacy and campaigning. And if you've got all the ingredients and you understand how they all work, it actually can become a pretty, um, I wouldn't say simple, but it's formulaic. Yeah, Yeah. it is. And I also think that um, a lot of participants also realize, you know, it's not, that complicated like I think um, a lot of people are put off talking about Palestine because you know what if they say you know what if they drop the t-word terrorist and then then what do you say and what if they ask you about Hamas and rah 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 but I think um I think what was really hammered home was like at the end of the day it is about settler colonialism it is about apartheid it is about the right to Mm self-determination it is about justice it's about human rights and you know, they can, the media and others can try and um, derail you and ask you about things like Hamas and like, you know, what do, whether you believe in Israel's legitimate state to exist and so all this sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. But um, it's important to bring it back to, to what it's actually about. And what it's actually about is um, is stolen land and, and settler colonialism and, and indigenous struggle for self-determination. And so um, I really hope to see more of those voices um, in the mainstream because at the moment it feels like there's a few of us and it would be great to share that burden around a little yeah, bit more because yeah, yeah. it is hard like it's very hard to it's emotionally taxing yeah very emotionally taxing and um but we do it because we have to and the more people we can mobilize to do it the stronger the movement becomes well, well, the reality janine and you know um a, a section of your uh childhood you you weren't in australia yeah and and you know i'm 20 plus years older than you and i know that in my brothers and I, in our youth, when we said Palestine, they went Pakistan because the Pakistanian yeah. cricket team would tour. Mm. And so anything that was sort of PA and then Stan became Palestine, yeah. not Palestine, but Pakistan. And so the first challenge we had to overcome was that. Um, and then, you know, it became, Palestine became more, you know, it was never a good word in the media, but they mm. heard it a bit more. And so that stereotype has to be. could spell it correctly at least. Yeah, so, listen, yeah. <laughs> they actually heard of it. You, yeah. know, you weren't necessarily a cricketer, you're a fast bowler or a yeah. <laughs> um, And then it became, uh, you know, you were synonymous with terrorism. And then, but increasingly, and certainly past 87, the first intifada, and then the second intifada, and, you know, blockade. And Israel's an ugly story, mm. it's, it's unpretty. And, mm. and the thing that, that they've packaged it in a very like sexy oh, way, though. But they've spent you know millions and billions of dollars in marketing. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I said this to a, 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 a woman during the week, and we're talking about advocacy and what we need to do. And I said, the thing about Palestine is we just have to show them. Yeah. I mean, it's just walking to the window and saying it's daylight. Yeah. Because Zionism is actually saying it's nighttime. Yeah. Because it's the absolute opposite of what it is. Yeah. We just have to take two steps and look out the window. See, yeah. It's daytime. The, the the difference between our legitimate right for self-determination and Zionism 
is night and day. Yeah, yeah. And and the parallels between the previous struggles and uh, apartheid. Yeah, Margaret Thatcher was shaking F.W. de Klerk's hand while mm. Nelson Mandela was still on Robben Island. Mm, yeah. Ronald Reagan didn't want to end apartheid. They're <laughs> human beings. Yeah. And so the all power to you and, and your crew. And I'm sure there's going to be uh, some in our lifetimes, you know, because I plan to live to at least 100. Oh, that's we're, 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 good too. We've got 50 years to go. We're going to do it in under 50 because I want to enjoy. Yeah. 30, okay? <laughs> um, we'll see a free Palestine. Now, give me your favorite Palestine story. You've been. You went to... Yeah. Uh, my favourite story from when I was in Palestine. Or, or it doesn't have to be when you're in Palestine. It could be a favourite Palestine um, story. Well, like one that really kind of res- – like one that I always often think about is um, – so I grew up with my granddad telling me stories of um, – so he left in 48 and he was 18 at the time. So he'd lived his whole childhood in in, um, in Palestine. And he tells me these stories about how um, Jewish Palestinians and Christian Palestinians and Muslim Palestinians are all living – um, side by side in peaceful coexistence, and um, he, the, the Palestine he spoke of, and the Palestine that now I dream of is a Palestine where there is peaceful coexistence, regardless of um, whether you are Jewish or whether you are Muslim or whether you are Christian or whether you don't believe at all. Um, and when I was in Palestine um, about two years ago now, almost. Mm, not the last December, but the December before, um, we went to um, the Church of Nativity on um, Christmas Eve, which was really nice. Um, It was really special, very, very special. And um, when we drove in, um, so we came from Jerusalem, and so we had to cross a checkpoint to get um, into Bethlehem. And um, obviously, like the horrors of Mm. of having to cross a checkpoint, um, you know, were... And, and, you, and, and you did it. And we did it in like a very privileged, right? We had yeah. a car. We weren't doing it on foot. So you had, you had the Israeli number plate. So you yeah, got to drive on their road. Yeah, yeah. And we have um, Australian passports. And so like, you know, yeah, they'd come into the car with guns and check our passports, but they're Australian. So we knew that there was some level of protection there. Um, but once you reach um, Bethlehem, you almost forget for a moment that you are in um occupied territory because you know everyone is singing christmas carols and everyone is just really happy to be there and there was a um, palestinian young palestinian marching band going through the streets and it was just like the most beautiful everyone was just really happy to be there and there was very much this sense of, of togetherness um and then um the call to prayer starts at um in at night and the carols all stop for the call to prayer um and, and then the call to prayer ends and then the carols resume again. And that whole idea of Muslims and Christians living side by side in peaceful coexistence, um, that's the that's what Palestine is to me. That's the Palestine that my granddad grew up telling me about. And that is my dream for Palestine is for for all people of all religions kind of um colors sexes everything to live to live side by side and and respect each other's differences respect that when the muslim call to prayer is going off we're going to stop singing our carols Mm. and then when we're done we'll participate in carols with you like i'm muslim but i went to um the the church service on um christmas eve and so um that is it's it's a positive story and it's a story that kind of reinstates my faith in in the cause and um, makes me really believe that coexistence is possible um, and and yeah I hope that a Palestine like that exists in our oh, lifetime. Oh God willing, absolutely. Because mm. the reality, you know, we we um, 
our listeners have heard out my dad's story many times and, and you know, he used to talk about marbles. Yeah. And he said, you know, Ibrahim, Avraham and Abraham played marbles Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and on Friday Ibrahim went to mosque on Saturday, Avraham went to temple on Sunday, Abraham went to church on Monday. They played marbles together. Yeah. Um, but that's sadly, and we talk about the, the carol stopping for the call to prayer. You, you know, we know the reality in, um, in in those magical Palestine times, the same was the case when the synagogues were, yeah. were in, 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 in service. But today, across Palestine or 48, um, the, the call to prayer is uh, the... the 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 sound level and the noise level because it's um pollution yeah to prayer you know in Zionism it doesn't is in absolute conflict yeah Zionism is in conflict to that beautiful picture you painted for us yeah and when we were in um as a perfect example of that when we were in Hebron um we were there around the time of lunchtime prayer and so we decided to go to the mosque and and pray and mm. then when we were done um one of the locals was telling us that the the um the guy that does the call to prayer has to go up the minaret um, five times a day to do the to do the call to prayer. He has to be um, he has to be accompanied by an IDF soldier five times a day to go up, do the call to prayer, and come down. So um, that's not they obviously don't think that he is a threat to Israel, but it's just a power play. It's just the fact that we decide whether you do a call to prayer or not. We decide whether the whole um, area gets to hear um, the call to prayer or not, and that is just, in my opinion, like the essence of mm. of apartheid Israel and, mm. and control. The brutality. Yeah. Um, now, Janine, you 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 haven't. So the beautiful thing about being Palestinian, and I've often said it to people, is if I wasn't Palestinian, would I, you know, want to have a beer with Duncan because Duncan's my mate, <laughs> or, or would I actually care about West Papua and Kashmir and yeah. you know, our First Nations peoples? Yeah. And I hope to think that I would. Yeah. I wouldn't be a privileged person who went, you know, uh, that's not what I'm going to do. Now, the reality is you you are uh, continuing the, the beautifulness of being Palestinian. Tell us a little bit about your work without giving away too many secrets of what you're doing now, what you hope to do. Um, so I kind of wear two hats at the moment. So I um, work as a researcher at Melbourne Uni um, on sexual and gender-based violence against refugees. Um, and so... Um, one of the main projects I'm working on at the moment is with Syrian and Iraqi refugees around um, their experiences of violence along their journeys and looking really at, um, it's part of a four country study. So with um, the UK, Sweden and Turkey um, and looking at, you know, areas of um, where people are specifically at risk to, to violence and how we can kind of make, make journeys um, safer for people. Um, and, you know, that really does come from well, my, my my drive and my passion for doing that sort of work does come from, um, as I said, like understanding the privilege and, and um, luck having lived that I had yourself. in my own journey. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's emotionally taxing work. Like I interview these participants and I see a lot of my own story and the stories that they're telling me, even though I've never experienced um, sexual gender-based violence um, in that way. Um, but 
yeah, so that's kind of um, one of my hats. And then the other one is um, I'm co-director of an organization, <laughs> Saha, um, of an organization called Road to Refuge. Um, and we aim to change the narrative around refugees and asylum seekers, uh, people seeking asylum in Australia um, by providing platforms, refugee voices to shape mainstream discourse, which sounds like a mouthful, but essentially we run capacity building programs um, and uh, we're and kind of events around changing the narrative. And so um, we have our flagship program, which is called In My Own Words, and that's a capacity building program. And we are actually currently accepting applications for the 2020 cohort. So um, if you're interested, if you come from refugee background, a refugee-like background and are interested in sharing your story, um, please um, apply. How would, um, how would they apply? Um, on our website, so roadrefuge.com, and then there's just a little tab called In My Own Words, and you can just Road click. Roadtorefuge.com. yes. yes. Um, and then we also are running um, a regional exhibit at the moment in Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong and Shepparton um, of Stories from Detention. So it's an audiovisual exhibit called They Cannot Take the Sky. Um, and we're doing some community engagement, so photography and poetry workshops in each of those areas alongside that. And, um, yeah, I think, like, realising how long it took me to kind of come out as a Palestinian and to tell my own story um, – and then when I did tell my story, like realizing how powerful it was in changing hearts and minds, um, really has kind of inspired me to to encourage other people to tell their own stories um, and really kind of take ownership back instead of being talked about um, for us to be the ones kind of deciding what gets said about us. So that's, yeah. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes or less than a minute to go, Janine. International Women's Day, you're an inspirational woman. Tell us about Palestinian women. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I think as Palestinian women, especially people, women living on the ground, I think there's almost like this triple burden um, placed on them. So there's um, the occupation, which is the first burden. Then there's um, almost like trying to challenge the patriarchy within our own community, which isn't to say that the patriarchy is a Palestinian problem or an Arab problem, but is to say that it exists in everywhere in different um, in different forms. And um, as Palestinian women, we do kind of um, push against a lot of patriarchal norms in our societies. Um, and then there's um, the white supremacy and um, that we try and push outside outside of our community. So I think. Um, something I found really hard has been trying to change um, patriarchal structures within our own communities, 